Hi, and welcome to the February Extra edition of the Jodcast. And just before we start the show, here's a question for you. What happens when you get loads and loads of amateur astronomers, put them in Kensington Town Hall for two days, and have the universe coming to London? The answer is going to be... Well, it's going to be dotted throughout the show, really, because the Jodcast this issue is being dotted with dispatches from Astrofest 2008. The Jodcast. Insert witty comment here. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Edward Boyce, Stuart Lowe and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. February Extra Issue. Hello there and welcome to the Jodcast. And as you may have noticed already, we have a change to the regular lineup as Dave is away being a film star. A film star. <laughs> oh. Yes, he is. And as you hear there, that's Nick. Hi, Nick. Hello. And we're joined by Megan as well. Hello. And as mentioned by Dave before the intro music, on February the 8th and 9th, we were at Astrofest at Kensington Town Hall. So coming up on the show this time, we have an interview with David Paul of the Campaign for Dark Skies. We find out about Google Sky from Carol Christian and Alberto Conti of the Space Telescope Science Institute. Nick talks to Sean Cole of the University of Durham about computer simulations of galaxy clusters and dark matter. Nick also brings some exciting news about a new extrasolar planet system. And we ask Edward Boyce your questions. But first, before all of that, let's have some listener feedback. First of all, we'd like to thank all the people who came to our stand at Astrofest. One lady who was talking to us actually was wearing a Jodcast t-shirt. That's fantastic. Somebody's wearing our merchandise. They are one of the very few people in the world who has one of those. should point out that if you are passing by the visitor centre at Jodrabank Observatory up here in Cheshire, you should pop on in and buy your very own t-shirt. You can have it in two colours now. Jodcast blue and black. I think people should definitely support your local Jodcast. So, Megan, do you want to start by reading some of our emails? Okay, we have an email from Sean Mulcahy of Kent, who's a first-time listener. He says he likes the nice balance with the science interviews followed by the Night Sky segment. Um, we've had one from Malcolm Powell as well, um, who can see the Lovell Telescope from his home in Congleton. He first saw the means of Jupiter through a homemade refractor through his parents' bedroom window as a kid in the 1960s, which is brilliant. Yeah. It's pretty hardcore, isn't it? You know, yeah. Make your own, make your own refractor telescope. <laughs> it is. He says he's got an LX200, actually, which is quite wow. impressive. But it mostly looks at the, the ceiling of his kitchen, I think. Well, I wonder whether he's still got the, the homemade telescope. Um, we've had one from Matt Dodd, who wrote in to point out a mistake in the ID3 tags in the MP3 for the last show, where it said the year was 2007. So I think that's been fixed. It has. Unfortunately, all those people who've already downloaded it, it will say 2007. So hopefully that doesn't mess up your collections too much. <laughs> it's not Groundhog Day at the Jodcast. It's a different show. <laughs> so thank you for pointing that out. Um, he also pointed out a really stunning desktop wallpaper showing the Earth from space. One from Richard Whittaker, who looks forward to hearing each edition. And one from Neil England, who says we have great interviews and an all-round interesting show. Thank you very much. We also had emails from Dr. Mark Amur, who was particularly fond of the podcast, and asks us if we could index each show to enable the listener to jump to particular sections of interest. Well, that's fairly tricky. However, however, we do have a search engine uh, running on the Jodcast webpages, and all our shows are archived with keywords. So if you have a particular keyword in mind, like 
moon or level or galaxy, you can put it into the search string engine and it will pop up with those segments in which we mentioned that keyword. Yeah, I think Mark was actually thinking about when he was using his MP3 player, he wants to skip ahead to the correct part of the show. And at the moment, we're not entirely sure how to add that information without breaking it on other people's MP3 players. So we like to make sure that the most number of people can listen to us, so we try and be as unsophisticated, so to speak, with our uh, MP3 format. So perhaps in a future uh, rendition, maybe we will do something like this. No guarantees, though. If any listener knows how to do it without breaking it on other people's MP3 players, please let us know. Of course, we're not saying uh, that we are going to break your MP3 player. Literally, it just means that maybe some of the Jogcast episodes won't work on your MP3 necessarily if we start fooling around with such things. So the Jodcast is certified safe for your MP3 player. Another email from Dances with Words from Ottawa, who has been listening to us since shortly after we launched back in 2006. And his or her favorite all-time interview with a scientist in any podcast or show is the one that Tim O'Brien did with Sir Bernard Lovell. And we have a real postcard from WP4BQV, which is the call sign of Robert Morales from London County in the USA. Now, he's also sent us a few pictures of himself with some of the best telescopes in the world, the Green Bank and the Arecibo Radio Telescope. So thank you very much for sending those to us. And his uh, letter was si- uh, sent to us with a wonderful stamp of Darth Vader this time. So last time we had Yoda, and now <laughs> it's Darth Vader. So keep them coming in, please, people. So any feedback you've got, please do send it to us via the web page or mail or phone. Or email. So, from the dark side to dark skies. Last year at AstroFest 2007, I talked to Bob Meisen of the Campaign for Dark Skies, and this year I caught up with David Paul to find out what's been happening over the past 12 months. We're joined by David Paul of the Campaign for Dark Skies. Hello, David. Welcome to the Jodcast. How's it? How are you doing? Okay, thank you. Um, can you tell us a bit about the Campaign for Dark Skies? Yeah, we've been going about 20 years now. It was set up, uh, one of the founders, co-founders was Bob Meisen, who's still on, he's on our national committee and our national coordinator. I'm on the committee with Bob, have been for four years. Right. And, uh, yeah, we're getting some successes as well and some, yes... It's getting worse in some areas. We're definitely getting it better in some areas too. And had we not been around, things would have been much worse today than they were 20 years ago, for sure. Right, so just tell us how things have changed in the past 20 years. I'm sure most of our listeners probably already know, but yeah. just give us an idea. Well, it's not all bad news. For example, uh, you'll notice all the, all, the, all the major highways have all got flat glass lighting these days, full cut-off lighting. That's a major success with the highways agency. I mean, something I've noticed that myself driving along yeah. the motorway. It's, it's excellent, and it reduces the glare as well. Yeah, but it's, it's better for drivers and... Even some local authorities now are beginning to move over from what was the old low-pressure sodium, which is the orange lights, to the high-pressure full cut-off lighting. Mm-hmm. And some councils are now doing part-time night switch off. Essex have trialled three towns. That's really? So, so what does yeah. that involve exactly? Well, um, in the Uttlesford and Malden districts of Essex, they're t- turning off about 60% of lights. So rather, apart from the town centre, all the, the out- outlying areas will be turned off after midnight, just like they used to be 30 years ago. That was the norm before the 1980s. Oh, excellent. So after midnight, amateur astronomers or yeah. anyone can go outside and look at the night sky. Yeah, so if you go to the outskirts of Malden, for example, you, you know, you go in the back garden and suddenly the Milky Way will appear because all the lights go off. It makes a major difference. And they're doing it for reasons of energy saving and CO2 reduction. But obviously there's, there's, an, off, there's an offshoot from that, which is the light pollution. 
I presume some people would um, bring up an argument about safety. So how has that been combated? Well, it's a trial. That's one of the trial three areas. And there's been done very close cons- consultation with the police. So, yeah, any areas that were high crime, they've left those on. Okay. And uh, from what I'm hearing so far, it's, um, it's either neutral or slightly better. So there's nothing bad happened. Right. And uh, I believe later this year there will be a rollout to the whole of Essex if... If the trial proves to be yeah, successful. Yeah, so far, so far it's, it's, it's done in cooperation with the public rather than, you know... Yeah, you know, that's as it should be. Right? Yeah, and it looks like in this Hertfordshire wants to follow. I think Buckinghamshire's trialling, I've heard Norfolk. Because obviously it's a higher energy cost, yeah, and they're yes. concerned about climate change. Uh, also, Essex has changed their policy onto better lighting now. Too, it's not quite flat glass, but it's a very shallow bowl, reduces the sideways lighting, the glare to drivers. That's becoming much more the norm in Essex now. Yes, yeah, so it sounds like the campaign for dark skies is actually making some headway finally. Uh, yeah, we, we've got. There's obviously this Clean Neighbourhoods Act as well, which is like the, um, the noise, a bit like noise pollution. You can, light pollution is a, is a is a nuisance, but there are exclusions. Transport sectors excluded, so, har- so harbours are... can pollute the whole of the English Channel. We're trying to change that. We're also, um, there's a Royal Commission just been put into place and we've been consulting with that. And so it's, it's good and bad. What we need is more legislation on planning. So every, every planning application should have a clause. Are you uh, creating glare to your neighbours, to the, you know, to, the, to the nighttime environment? So that's, what, that's the ultimate aim, is to have legislation on all lighting. Yeah. Well, we wish you the best of luck with all yeah, that. It, yeah. So it's not um, all bad news. So. <laughs> Thanks for talking to us. Okay, cheers. Cheers. So that was David Paul there at AstroFest. And Megan, you have some more news about dark skies. Yes, there is a plan at the end of March. There is a a global campaign to have everybody to try and switch the lights off for an hour. So this is March the 31st. This is called, I think, World Earth Hour. It's at 8pm in your part of the world. So the idea is wherever you are, whether you're at home or at work, you turn the lights off at 8 o'clock. And then you can turn things back on at nine o'clock if you still need them. Does that include the TV? That includes the TV, mm. yes. <laughs> but not MP3 players. But not MP3 players, no. You can keep. So you can listen to the Jodcast. Yeah. Then the March edition of the Jodcast. Yeah. If you're stuck for other things to do, well, you've turned your TV and all your lights off. And perhaps go outside and have a look at the night sky. Well, that's even better. And coming back to the more immediate future, on February the twentieth and twenty-first, we have a lunar eclipse, as Ian mentioned in the night sky segment at the beginning of the month. The eclipse is visible in South America and parts of North America on the night of the 20th of February, and it'll be visible in the early hours of the morning on the 21st from Europe, Africa and Western Asia. I don't know how many of us will be getting up at that time. I'll be out having a look. Good. (laughs) Now let's get back to AstroFest, and there were many great speakers over the two days of AstroFest, and one of the talks was about Google Sky. Now you've probably heard of Google Sky, it's a program you can download for free on the internet. And I went to find out a little bit more. All right, we're joined by Alberto Conti and Carol Christian from the Space Telescope Science Institute in the US. Um, welcome to the Jodcast. Thanks. Thank you. Carol, can you just give us a background? What is the Space Telescope Science Institute? Sure. The Space Telescope Science Institute, which is a mouthful, or STSCI as we call it, is the science home for the Hubble Space Telescope and will be the science home for the James Webb telescope which will be launched around 2013-2014. So we provide all of the calibration of the data and distribute data to science researchers as well as to the public. The operations of the telescope is done at the Goddard Space Flight Center. So we're the science arm of the whole project. 
So what do you do at the Space Telescope? I'm the deputy of what's called the Community Missions Office, and actually Community Missions has to do with a lot of other missions that we support, like we support Kepler, we do some work for the Gemini Observatory, which is ground-based uh, telescope, and some other work. And then I'm also the education director for the National Virtual Observatory. I do that just in a wee tiny bit of my time. Right. And what do you do at the Space Telescope? <laughs> Uh, I, I originally came to Space Telescope in 2003 and I was uh, in the archive. We have a large archive. The NASA archive for UV and optical data is actually a Space Telescope. It's called MAST. And is that publicly available on the internet? Yes, that's all publicly available. Archive.stsi.edu. That's the... That's the <laughs> we'll put URL. a link to that in the show notes. There well. you go. Yeah, and um, it contains, as Carol just mentioned, uh, not only Hubble data, but images from UV satellites that we have and all the all optical... Uh, satellites and in 2006 I guess I joined the community missions office where Carol uh, works so it's a very small office but it's very active yes and you're here at AstroFest talking about something called Google Sky um, and the involvement of the space telescope in that can you just tell us a bit about Google Sky to start with what is it Sky and Google Earth as we're supposed to call it okay. or Sky um, <laughs> Really, it's an adaptation of the Google Earth technology to present astronomy data. So we really liked Google Earth. We thought it was a great way to present large amounts of data. And as Alberta has said, we have large amounts of data. So there's a lot of sky data, but there's also many HST observations, HST being the Hubble Space Telescope. And uh, so we wanted to be able to make all that stuff available. So we were really attracted by the technology and we think it's a great way to display our wares if you will but also from all the other observatories so we're trying to encourage the other observatories to make data available there too so is it just the the press release images or is there a bit more to it right now for hst it's the press release images but we have plans to make available most of the other data so that will be a slower process but we're starting with the press release because they're the most eye-catching yes they are the prettiest Uh, so it's a good place to start Um, and Google Sky is free, isn't it? Google Earth and Google Sky. Uh, Sky is free. I call it Google Sky, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's free. It's a free download. It's a version of Google Earth, actually, with a little button where you where you you know turn the sky on, basically. And so you uh, flip yourself up to look <coughs> upwards instead of downwards. Yeah, actually, what happens is they Google basically turns the camera inside out, so to speak, and it, they put you at the center of the Earth, uh, and we're looking out basically, and they serve imagery from uh, not only Hubble, which is uh, I call the Hubble the high-res images of the sky, the pretty images of the sky. Then you have, uh, you know, a base map, which is basically the digitized sky survey, which we also own partially. And also the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which is um, covers a quarter of the sky and is deeper. It has a little more color, it's a little bit deeper, basically, than the, 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 the DSS, is the, is, is the DS, SDSS. <laughs> See acronyms. I don't know well with acronyms either. Uh, so it's a it's a very rich data set. And so as Carol just mentioned, there are plans to add uh, many more Hubble observations, but also other data sets like X-ray data and uh, infrared data, for example. Right. And I think you're providing Im- information captions that go with the, the oh, images that. as well? Yes. We have a lot of content that was created by our Office of Public Outreach for the press releases. So there are links to more information. There are details on the observations that were made to make up the press releases. There's also links to technical information like the astrophysics data system and other things. And then you can also get to other places at the Hubble News Center. So the idea is that you can go find an observation in the context, what 
uh, constellation is it in, what's around it, then link to the information balloon, and then go off elsewhere into cyberspace and find lots of other stuff about that object. Well, it sounds like a, a great project, and I mean, I've had to play with it as well, and it's, it's good fun, and I hope you, you get all the full data sets online soon. Uh, we, we will. There are also uh, other features that we've created. Maybe uh, Alberto can oh, speak yeah. so to the like other thing like, is, where is Hubble and stuff like that. Yeah, so the other thing we wanted to do is, uh, you know, it's a very interesting and easy interface, right? And so, as Carol mentioned, the, the balloons are very informative, uh, but also there's other things that we can we can show. Like, we can not only show balloons about press releases that Hubble showed, but we can also take a look at the position of Hubble. Mm. So there's a little service that we provide, so you can click on this little layer, and uh, the position of Hubble shows up on, on the sky, where it is right now basically is that in the google earth version or? it's in, in the google it's actually served by us so you have to go if you go to hubblesite.org and you find your way to uh, what G we call sky. g sky uh, you basically have a link to this little program it's called a little kml file which is what mm. google sky and google earth understand and this will basically make a call to our servers and ask where is hubble now and so what we're doing in the future this is available now in the future is we have the same you know once we have the technology to do it for one satellite we can do it for everything and so what we try to do is we try to put all the science satellites for example we did uh, when we gave a talk here at astrofest we actually showed um, this morning how you can actually show satellites and debris for example around the earth with the same technology right so and it was very easy it was very very so you interesting can look at the positions of those satellites on the sky but you can also then switch over to the earth right. mode and see where they are too so because we thought that would be fun to right. have all sides and for hubble in particular there is an information balloon which talks about the telescope its instruments field of view good stuff like that very good well thank you very much for talking to us on the jodcast great it was much. fun thanks, thanks. It was fun. thanks. <laughs> thank you so there we are, that was Carol Christian and Alberto Conti of the Space Telescope Science Institute. And as we're on the subject of simulating the universe on a computer, Nick? Yes, I spoke with Dr. Sean Cole from Durham University about how he uses massive computers to simulate galaxies. Your research is largely on, and has been largely on, galactic structure. Is that true? On galaxy formation and on the, the very large-scale distribution that galaxies trace out, it's a very large-scale structure. Okay, so you're talking about the structure of large numbers of galaxies overall. Yes, the, the sort of filaments and clusters that they, they trace out on very large scales. So when you talk about filaments of galaxies, you're talking about what? What, what do we actually see in the universe? So if, if you make a map of, of the galaxies on very large scales, you, you find it's, it's rather like a three-dimensional cobweb and that there are long strands connecting large clumps of galaxies, but then along these strands are like a, a string of pearls, a set of galaxies. And that, So that string of pearls is the, the filament. Hmm. They seem to trace out a, a complicated and quite beautiful structure in, in the large-scale galaxy distribution. So when we look out into the universe and we see galaxies, we know that there are hundreds of thousands of galaxies, millions of galaxies out there. They're not distributed evenly throughout the universe there's not you know they're not, they're not you know stuck out there in a nice sort of regular way it's not a uniform distribution but they're you say that they're clumped and strung out along lines yes. of galaxies and so they're not a uniform they're not even a random distribution they're, there's the sort of order to their their, their clustering and um, extracting information from from that pattern is a lot of what what we do um, so in Durham we we run computer simulations that start off with what we think are the initial ingredients of the universe. And depending on what assumptions you make there, 
you produce different patterns today. For instance, there was speculation that there was a particular fundamental particle, a, a neutrino, and in that case, you find that the pattern is very different. There's not a lot of structure on the smaller scales. The, the very larger scales look similar, but then on smaller scales, the, the pattern is distinctly different to, to the more standard case. So you have to put a lot of information into these simulations before you get going. One of these things is such a things like does the the, the, the neutrino exist, and, and presumably how. Uh, how heavy it is, because I guess all of these uh, ingredients, the, the the big player in the simulations is what gravity does on on large scales. What other bits and pieces do you put into a, a simulation to try and? I mean, to to, to simulate a, a universe sounds like an awfully big job. How do you even start? Yes, although a lot of our simulations actually have very few ingredients. Um, what one needs are the particles that carry most of the mass in the universe, and those are actually believe not to be the particles that you and I are made of, but uh, some more exotic particle which has been dubbed cold dark matter. And the only important force that acts between them is is gravity. Uh, And so all you need is the initial distribution of these dark matter particles and then to compute the gravitational force. But these days, and the largest simulations we've done are with 10 billion particles, that's one with 10 zeros after it, what the simulation does is, on each one of those particles, is calculate the force on it due to the gravitational attraction of the other 10 billion minus 1 particles. Mm. And in principle, it's a very simple calculation, but in order to do it very quickly, it's very hard because you, you've got a lot of forces to calculate and you've got to do this repeatedly at, at close time steps so that you can follow the individual orbits of the particles. But very clever methods have been used so that supercomputers can be exploited to their the best potential and, and follow these simulations all the way to the present. I mean, as you say, it sounds easy, right? I mean, you've got a billion particles, which, you know, sounds like a lot, but in, for a computer, no big deal. It's a, a billion numbers. But you're saying that in order to figure out how each one of those little particles moves, you have to do essentially a billion times a billion calculations. And you have to do that for every instance of time. Precisely. And that would actually take, even with a computer where it can do these things in microseconds, it would still take many thousands of years if that's the method you used. So you have to use clever algorithms that enable you to do fewer calculations and yet still get the end result to the required accuracy. Hmm. And the other thing, too, is that even though we're talking about a billion particles, which it's a big number, but that can't possibly be exactly the number of particles that there are in the universe. No, that's true. So... Each one of our particles is actually representing, in a very crude way, a large set of real particles. Um, and often, in some of the simulations we do, a, a single particle will weigh more than the whole galaxy. So, uh, you know, not, we're not even resolving the, the, the many hundreds of millions of stars in our galaxy. We're just treating them as one mass particle and what their average position and average mass is. Mm. And that's all. I suppose the idea is that we want to see what the result is of having this mysterious cold dark matter behaving in the universe with a little sprinkling of the matter which, for instance, you and I and stars and planets are made of and just see what happens. Right? You've got this cold dark matter which we don't, we can't see. It doesn't radiate by itself, but it only interacts gravitationally. How does that form? How does that create the, ga- uh, so the universe that we see? Yes, the, the dark matter really just... Uh, defines the framework in which the sort of more interesting physics occurs and that's the other side of the work that uh, I'm involved with in Durham. The dark matter is 
is the dominant mass component of the universe. It's where most of the mass is, and so so it creates most of the gravity. But then into those gravitational clumps, those gravitational potential wells, that's where the, the normal matter is, is pulled. So a galaxy is formed by first forming a, a large clump of dark matter and then the normal material fa- falling in with the dark matter. And then there are lots of more interesting physics that can occur. The gas can, streams can collide with each other, which will cause them to crash together and heat up. They can then get to such high temperatures that they can emit X-rays and, and that helps them cool down by getting rid of that radiation. And eventually they can form very dense clouds of gas capable of, of similar conditions that we see in our own Milky Way where, where stars actively form. So this is how we think that the processes begin. The gas is pulled in by the dark matter, can cool, and then can start forming stars in, in dense clouds. Which we can see. I mean, essentially the stars and the galaxies... Uh, which uh, the, the stars comprise trace out the the structure of this underlying underlying is not really the word is it it's the 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 the, the dark matter distribution which we cannot directly see but we can see the result of it we can see yeah, that's the that's right it's, it's it's rather like uh, the fairy lights on the christmas tree that's in your office that uh, you can't see the underlying tree at least not in the dark but once you turn the the lights on they trace out the structure and you, you can re- instantly recognize it as a, a christmas tree but um in, in this case, the galaxies are lighting up the structure, and we, we're assuming that it's tracing the underlying dark matter, but all we see are the lights. Hmm. So where do you put in the ingredients into your simulation and, and push go, and then, I guess, have a cup of coffee for a week or two while it <laughs> runs the numbers? In fact, how long does it take to run a, a typical simulation? I mean, the largest simulations where, where I've pressed the go button uh, have taken a, a few days to run on right. a large supercomputer, but the, the biggest simulations that I've analysed uh, have actually taken of order a month on a supercomputer and you never get a month in one go you get a, a few hours here and a few hours there so in real time it, it takes a year or more to run yeah so at the end of all this computation at the end of it you have a, a useful a product you have a simulation of the universe with uh, galaxies strung out and these these interesting filamentary shapes here i presume you've got big voids between these these, these structures but the most interesting thing is of course you can measure what the dark matter has done you can see it because you put it into the simulation and you know what, what a particle, a dark matter particle is. Yes, that's where the, the theorists, the people who do run these simulations, have the advantage over the observers who look at the real universe is that in the simulation we know where the dark matter is as well as where the galaxies are. Uh, whereas in the real universe we can only directly see the, the galaxies. And it's basically trying to find out what information we can learn from the dark matter by looking at the galaxies in the simulation and, and translating that to, to what we can infer about the real universe is, is much of what, what we do. So sort of bootstrapping from the information you can learn from the simulation and then applying it to the real universe. Mm. So how do they do? How do the simulations compare to the real universe? In many respects, very well. I mean, the, the structures that we see in the simulations, these, uh, this cosmic web, is very much as what we see in surveys like the, the 2DF Galaxy Redshift Survey and the, and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. These are actual real observational surveys which look at uh, millions of galaxies, real galaxies, and see how they're they're positioned in space. And the 2DF survey, which looked at uh, a quarter of a million galaxies, is actually what I spent uh, 
quite a lot of my life <laughs> working on for the last uh, 10 years but uh, that's now finished and we, we're we're moving on to the next generation of, of surveys to see how they will compare with what we can learn from the simulations. Mm. I should point out that we're not with these simulations you're not exactly trying to reproduce what you see you're just looking at the nature of of uh, how the universe would be structured given your input constraints. You're not trying to say, oh, we see, we actually do see a, a filamentary structure of galaxies in, in the real universe, and let's try and model that exactly. Yes, it's only a statistical comparison, which is often hard to, to explain. We're not trying to produce the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, in this particular location, and Andromeda galaxy next door as it is, but rather a universe in which galaxies like the Milky Way occur with the same abundance as in the real universe. Mm -hmm. So just statistical properties, and that the filamentary structure looks statistically the same. And, you know, rather like we could be in just some different random part in the universe, and uh, the structure wouldn't look exactly the same as here, but uh, many of its statistical properties would be the same. Presumably you run the simulations a few times. I know it takes a long time to run one, but you want to run a simulation and hope that maybe, you know, it's a typical simulation. You haven't suddenly, you haven't been fooled in one particular case and you've got a, a simulation that just happens to look very much like what we observe. Presumably you do it several times just to make sure you you, ha you weren't lucky or, or unlucky as, as you want to see it. Yes, uh, um, the short answer to that is yes, but we, it depends what sort of simulation we're doing. Um, when we do these simulations of a whole universe, we're actually doing... We don't do the whole universe, but we do a very large box, which might be many millions of light years or billions of light years across. And it's believed that the universe is, is smooth and uniform on, on those very large scales. And, and therefore, we, we don't actually have to do se separate boxes. We've actually got a fair sample of the universe in, in even small fragments. We can chop the box into ten and, and look at the properties in each section of the box, and they're, they're similar. On the other hand, we also do very high-resolution simulations, very detailed simulations of formation of individual galaxies. And there it's important that you do many of those because they will have different formation histories. Sometimes the Andromeda and Milky Way will have already merged. Sometimes they won't merge until the future. And if you just do one, uh, it clearly won't be typical of, of what happens in the universe. So these simulations you mentioned about the formation of galaxies, what have they told us about the formation of galaxies? How do galaxies form? They've shown us a pretty convincing case that dark matter plays a very important role in galaxy formation in sort of setting out the, the general scheme by which the galaxy begins to form by fragments forming at high redshift, which, which later merge. These are fragments of, of dark matter. Fragments of dark matter, but also prob probably containing small proto-galaxies, which... Um, you know, the first generations of stars have already started producing heavy elements and, and metals when the stars in those galaxies have gone supernovae. So these proto-galaxies later merge and more gas cools onto their, onto the remnant that's formed by that merger. And this is how we think galaxies form. But we've also learned that the energetic processes that occur within galaxies are also important. So it's not just the large-scale framework that determines what will form at the centre, but the processes going on in the very centre also affect the gross properties of the galaxy. So one example of this is that uh, massive stars only live a very short time. They burn up their nuclear fuel very rapidly, and 
and then die in spectacular supernova explosions. Those explosions pump a lot of energy back into the, the gas of the galaxy, can reheat it, and actually truncate future star formation by making the gas too hot to form future generations of stars. So the actual formation of stars in a galaxy can act to prevent the formation of further stars. Yes, and for that reason we call it a feedback process, because mm. it, it feedbacks on the original process and, and inhibits it happening further. In recent years, it, it's been realized that a, a process that happens on even smaller scales can also be important. So most, perhaps even all galaxies, host a black hole at their center. There's a black hole at the center of our own galaxy. In many galaxies, these, like our own, these black holes are doing very little. But if you start throwing matter into a black hole, not only does it eat up that matter, but as it falls in, it starts moving very rapidly, and that causes it to, to emit a lot of energy. And so you actually can get a lot of energy out of the surroundings of a black hole. And it's actually much more efficient than nuclear fusion in terms of generating energy. And a black hole being fed by small amounts of material can pump out enough energy into the galaxy to to reheat a lot of the gas in the galaxy. Hmm. We have observational evidence that this seems to be happening on very large scales in clusters of galaxies. But we don't understand the the details of the physical mechanism of how the energy gets from the close environment of the black hole to the very large-scale environment of the whole galaxy. Uh, One might think that the energy sort of punches its way out and bypasses the gas, rather like firing a a bullet at at some sort of fluffy object like a, a cloud, that the bullet goes straight through and doesn't do very much to the cloud at all. But there would be enough energy in that bullet to completely evaporate the cloud if somehow you could capture it. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand the mechanisms by which that's happening at the moment. So this is a, a feedback mechanism whereby matter going onto the central black hole is being stripped apart, heated, and expelled outwards into the galaxy, uh, again disrupting the, the star formation processes in their galaxy. Yes, that's what we think is happening, and we've been able to explain some of the properties of galaxies and the relationship between the galaxies and the black holes that they host by building such a model. But the details of quite how they do it is still not understood. So even though the uh, basic simulation of the universe that you're describing is relatively simple, you say it doesn't involve an awful lot of uh, input parameters or things that could affect the outcome, now we're starting to talk about some fairly interesting physics going on with these feedback mechanisms. So is that hard to include into these uh, simulations? Yes, uh, and and that's really where a lot of the uncertainty comes from and that we can't predict the detailed properties of the galaxies. So galaxy formation is a very interesting problem for, for a physicist because we actually know the initial conditions very accurately. What actually limits our ability to, to predict what the galaxy should look like today is, is actually the complexity of, of the of the physics. So we know the fundamental physical equations and it doesn't require new physics of you know, fourth force or, or um, new particles beyond the dark matter particles I've talked about already. But nevertheless, we, we can't solve those physics equations accurately enough. And it's rather like modelling the weather. Uh, meteorologists understand most of the processes that involved in the heating and cooling of, of the atmosphere and uh, tr- transport of energy. But can they tell you when it's going to rain on Wednesday? No. No. Because it's, <laughs> it's too complicated. And, 
Uh, I see. Do you think that you predict that in the future we will be able to solve these equations more accurately? Is it a computational limitation or is it a limitation in our uh, ability to solve the, the mathematics itself? So I think if you'd asked me this uh, four or five years ago, I, I would have been more confident in saying that we would be able to solve these things accurately. But now that the, the black holes have come into the picture, it does make things an awful lot more complex because the the physics of the black hole is happening on a, a scale of a parsec, which is three light years, which might sound very big, but that's many thousands of times smaller than the size of the, the galaxy. Mm. And where we might have been able to understand the average properties of, of galaxies on the sort of kiloparsec, thousands of parsec scale, um, now that we've got to understand the physics that's happening on a much smaller scale, it, it seems that... Uh, it could be much more complicated than I thought a few years ago. <laughs> it's an amazing job that you're trying to do. I mean, this is the problem of scale. You're trying to model you know, clusters of galaxies, clusters of clusters of galaxies, filaments of galaxies, essentially a large you know, chunk of universe. Yet you're saying that the, some of the feedback processes are occurring on the scale of you know, a, a tiny, tiny little spot inside these big simulations. So how do you get around that problem? You're able to put in some information into the simulations about these feedback processes from these very, very small scales, but you can't model it down to that level because we don't have enough computational power to do it. How how do you get that information into the simulation? So I, I agree. So we, we have to use um, very simplified models, essentially, um, where we we try and capture some of the things that we know must be true about this physical modeling in particular, you can look at how much energy is going to be output into the, into the medium and consider simple models of energy conservation. And you can do that without knowing in detail, uh, how that energy is transported. But you nevertheless have to make quite crude assumptions. And the, the interesting thing is if you make those crude assumptions, then you can make predictions about what the galaxy should look like in your model and then go and compare them to galaxies in the real universe. And hopefully you, you'll learn whether your model is accurate enough or whether other processes need to be taken into account. And, and in that way, we hope to learn what are the important processes. Mm. Uh, just before we started talking about these feedback mechanisms, you mentioned that um, when you look at the simulations on how galaxies form, you see that uh, smaller clumps of, uh, of dark matter encompassing uh, um, real matter, if you like, sort of the proto-galaxy material. Uh, merge together to form bigger clumps. Does that continue as uh, as the process? Yes, we, we think that the the basic way in which structure is forming in the universe is this hierarchical bottom-up scenario, so that you start off with little things, they merge together to form larger objects, they merge again to form yet larger objects. And today the, the largest objects in the universe are so-called clusters of galaxies, uh, which contain many thousands of galaxies that we, which one of the nearest rich clusters is the, the Coma Cluster. But in, in the future, those could merge to form yet larger objects. Mm. And ten years ago, we would have said that that process would carry on forever with uh, getting larger and larger objects. And when the universe is a 100 times older than today, the typical massive objects would be 10 or 100 times larger than today. But now the current paradigm is that the the universe also contains dark energy, not only just dark matter, but dark energy. And this dark energy is responsible for the expansion of the universe accelerating at the present time. And that 
means that all these clusters of galaxies are, are moving further and further away from each other, which means that the, their gravitational attraction is being reduced because they're, they're moving further apart, and th- there will be less and less merging in the future. Hmm. So almost the largest structures have almost formed, and, and what's going to happen in the future is that they just move further apart. Right, it's interesting that we've... We, we currently live in uh, an era where, as you say, the larger structures have formed, and even though gravity normally acts to clump together and produce these bigger and bigger structures, this mysterious dark energy is pushing the, the universe out faster and faster, and so it's counteracting this general... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real puzzle. I think if you'd asked cosmologists 10 or 20 years ago what they thought the components of the universe are, were, that uh, nobody would have said that they thought there was going to be dark energy in any significant amount. And yet the, the observations of the accelerating universe are showing that it, it, that the present day it is the dominant energy contribution in the universe. And that's very strange because you very quickly go from the transition between dark energy being a negligible component in the universe to being totally dominant. Whereas we seem to be observing in the present day that it's it's dominant, but not totally dominant. We're, we're matter and things we're made from are, are still a significant uh, percentage of the energy density in the universe. But So we're somehow living at this special epoch where we're going through this transition from being dominated by dark matter to being dominated by dark energy. Mm. And I don't think anyone expected that, and we have no underlying physical explanation of, of why we live in this special era. Can your simulations tell us anything about dark energy? Very little. Because we're going through this transition, in the past the dark energy was not important. So all all the structure formation is pretty much the same whether the dark energy was there in the past or not, because it was there at such a low level. So it doesn't, it has very little bearing on on galaxy formation. It does have an effect on the the growth of the very large scale structures today, and we and others are working on looking at very large galaxy surveys and comparing them to the microwave background radiation, that's the thermal radiation left over from the Big Bang itself. And there's an interesting effect whereby if radiation from this microwave background is travelling through a a structure that's made of dark matter and dark energy, then how that structure is evolving can affect the temperature of the the background radiation that you you see. Uh, And the dark energy can cause the expansion to be rapid and, and result in a a cold spot on the microwave background. Mm. And so people are trying to look at uh, galaxy surveys and see whether cold spots line up with the large structures that we see traced out in, in the galaxies. Right. So presumably the hot spots in the cosmic microwave background would be regions where the universe was you know, more energetic, more energy involved, and the galaxies less likely to form. Is that the idea? There are hot, hot spots and cold spots uh, in the microwave background which are intrinsic to the position where the microwave background photons originate from. So they correspond to overdensities and underdensities that will eventually form the structures we see today. But then there's a a second effect, which is like a a foreground effect, that we're looking at this distant microwave background, but we're looking through a screen of of galaxies and the the mass distribution that those galaxies are tracing out. And it's this evolution of the local galaxy density and local mass density through the propagation of the light through that region can actually change a hot spot into a cold spot or, or a cold spot into a hot spot. And it, it, so it, it's, it's very hard to measure directly because you're looking for a small effect and you're looking at a, 
a source which isn't uniform in the first place. So the only way of, of measuring this signal is in a statistical way mm. of correlating the foreground structure with the background. What's the next step with the simulations? Is it more computers? Is it running for longer? What needs to be done? The next step in trying to understand galaxy formation is actually putting more physical processes into the into the simulations. We've we've talked about how gas cools and how star formation starts and how the energy from the star formation affects the the cooling. Often this is done by simple uh, analytic calculations that uh, astronomers, physicists in general, treat things as being spherically symmetric and uh, and and simplify the equations down to something that they can do on the back of an envelope. But really, the geometry is much more complicated, and now we would like to solve the the equations relating to how photons propagate in the universe, radiative transfer, and how shock waves propagate through the gas directly on the computer. Mm. So to, to follow not only the gravitational processes, but the processes involving the gas and the star formation, and how they're coupled together. We already have these sort of processes inserted into the simulations, but in a, a reasonably crude way. Yes, uh, and the idea is to, is to improve this and, and allow calculations to be done of higher resolution that can resolve these sort of processes on, on quite small scales uh, and perhaps understand how galactic winds are driven, how the gas is driven out of galaxies, and how very high-energy photons, very high-energy uh, light that's emitted by stars and by black holes, comes to ionise the universe early on. Hmm. Well, we look forward to the results, so thank you very, very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you. So there you go, fascinating stuff. Cutting-edge astronomy computational physics. Excellent. Well, now it's time for our regular mid-month segment, which is Ask an Astronomer. Ask an Astronomer time, and for this episode, Dr. Edward Boyce is answering your questions. So thanks again, Edward, for coming in and answering questions. You're welcome, Nick. It's always first, fun. Oh, yes. First question is from Mark Ashley, and he writes, I often hear about probes and satellites being sent to one of the Lagrange points for a stable orbit. There seem to be a lot of probes and satellites going there. So obviously, a Lagrange point is more of a volume than a true point. So the question is, how big is a Lagrangian Point. Well, the Lagrange points are exact points, but as Mark has deduced, spacecraft move around in a big volume surrounding those points. There are five Lagrange points where the gravitational forces of the Earth and the Sun combine to keep a satellite right at that spot. It moves around the Sun at the same angular speed as the Earth, so it's always in the same position relative to the Sun and the Earth. Now, when it's close to a Lagrange point, a spacecraft can orbit around the exact position, using only a tiny bit of fuel to stay in that region. Take the example of the WMAP satellite, which we say is at the Lagrange point L2. WMAP doesn't sit right at that point, it moves around it. And it's actually 25,000 to 250,000 kilometres away from L2, depending on which part of its orbit the spacecraft is in. So you can put many spacecraft near the same Lagrange point. L2, which is on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun, about 1.5 million kilometres away, has WMAP there right now. And in the next decade, it should get Planck, Gaia, and the James Webb Space Telescope. These various spacecraft will be tens of thousands of kilometres apart, which is still pretty close on the scale of the solar system, but big enough that a spacecraft a few metres across won't bang into an- another one. So I guess that's the question, isn't it? How likely is it that the Lagrange points get so crowded that we're going to have bits of spacecraft <laughs> floating there in a few decades' time? So you're saying that the chances of a collision there are pretty remote. 
Oh, they're very remote, yes, because, yeah, it is a case of you move around the Lagrange point, you know, on an orbit that's tens or hundreds of thousands of kilometres wide, which is, you know, still looks very much the same point relative to all the planets and the sun and the Earth. And, you know, you can stay there for a few years with using only a tiny amount of fuel. That's why we put the spacecraft at those points. Mm. Very good. Next question from Mark Ashley is... Some time ago, I remember hearing that gravitational waves propagate indefinitely throughout the universe without attenuation, without getting smaller. Is this true? If so, how is it true? Why doesn't it break the conservation of energy law? Gravitational waves do propagate throughout the universe, but they also get weaker as they go along, just like electromagnetic waves, optical light, X-rays, radio waves, and those sorts of things. So gravitational waves have to conserve energy. So as they spread out over a bigger area, the energy per unit of area goes down. Now, there are two things about gravitational waves which are special, and that Mark, hearing one of those things might explain why Mark thought that gravitational waves don't get weaker. Now, the first special thing is that gravitational waves are hardly absorbed at all by matter between us and the source. So if some object sends out electromagnetic waves, light or you know, X-rays, even a tiny bit of stuff in the way might block that radiation so it doesn't reach us at Earth. But if an object sends out gravitational waves, they have to get out into the universe and reach our detectors. There just can't be enough matter to block them. Mm. And so they will get weaker, but they won't get blocked by something in the way. So they will attenuate, they will get less in amplitude simply through their spreading out throughout the universe, but nothing is going to stop them, nothing is going to block them. Yes, that's right. They don't get completely wiped out by a clump of gas sitting in the way, which can, e- which can easily happen with to a light beam. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that is a little bit different about detecting gravitational waves is that all of the detectors um, that have been set up measure the gravitational wave strain, and that's a measure of how much space stretches when the gravitational wave goes past. The strain actually falls off linearly with the distance from the source, while the energy in a gravitational wave or in an electromagnetic wave falls off as the square of the distance. Mm. So, to take an example, if you've got some source and you move it twice as far away, the strain goes down to half of the original value, but the energy in the wave drops down to one quarter of the original value. So, um, all those electromagnetic telescopes measure the energy, and so sources get faint pretty quickly as they get more distant, because they're falling away as the square of the distance. Whereas a gravitational wave telescope is measuring strain, and the distant sources don't get faint quite as rapidly. I suppose the real problem is that gravitational waves are really weak to begin with. Mm. So, you know, at the moment, our detectors can't see them. They're not quite sensitive enough. But when we do get detectors sensitive enough to pick up gravitational waves, it will be easier to push out to larger distances. You won't have as much of a dropping off in energy once you start saying, oh, let's go and try and detect gravitational waves from even more distant places in the universe. Very good. Thank you very much. Next question comes from Max. And he suggested a way of escaping from Ian Morrison. Now, Ian Morrison, in this case, is not the bloke who does the night sky for us every month. It is, in fact, an asteroid named after Ian Morrison, called asteroid Ian Morrison. We had a question a while ago, uh, how could you escape from asteroid Ian Morrison? Could you simply jump off it, or what speed you need to achieve to escape from Ian Morrison? So Mm -hmm. Max suggests that perhaps you could use a trampoline to escape from Ian Morrison. Okay, so, as Nick said, this question refers to the asteroid Ian Morrison, and uh, we know that this asteroid is 8 kilometres in diameter, and last month David Alt told us, let's assume that it has twice the density of water, a good guess for an asteroid, and so you have an escape velocity of 4.4 metres per second. If you can 
jump up from the surface at that speed, or faster, then you'll just keep on going up and the asteroid's gravity will never pull you back down. Now, the problem is that even the very best humans can't jump up at 4.5 metres per second. The world record high jumper has only gone up at 3.5 metres per second. And so, you know, you don't, can't actually jump up and get the escape velocity. Now, Max's suggestion of using a trampoline to boost your velocity is a pretty good one, and it almost works. <laughs> uh, when you land on a trampoline, sort of going down, it pushes you back up with almost the same speed you had coming down automatically without you doing anything. And if you push off a little bit extra, then you add to that speed. And so that's how you can keep jumping higher. You add an extra push and you keep increasing your speed with every bounce. Now on Earth, you can easily get to a point where you're bouncing up to a height of 1.5 metres. So we know that trampolines can boost you to a speed of 6 metres per second when you leave the trampoline. Um, you know, you, you have to have 6 metres per second if you're going to get 1.5 metres up in the air. So the trampoline can store just as much energy in its springs when it's on an asteroid. It's going to work the same way. So if you could bounce up and down on the trampoline a few times on the asteroid, you would actually get your speed up above 4.5 metres per second, and then you would escape. Unfortunately, there's a real problem with bouncing several times on the trampoline uh, when you're on the asteroid, because the gravity is so weak. Say your first jump, you go up at 2 metres a second. Um, on Earth, you'd come back down very quickly, and after only going a short distance upwards. But on the asteroid, with the weak gravity, you'd go about a kilometre above the surface, and then you'd have to come down another kilometre, and the whole process would take at least half an hour. <laughs> this is just because the asteroid has such weak gravity. Um, meanwhile, while you're up there, you know, going a kilometre up above the asteroid and then coming down again, the asteroid's going to be rotating under you. Yes. And you're, you're going to be moving around in your orbit, but you're going to be rotating around the asteroid at a different speed by the time you get several hundred metres above the surface, because you've gone from being four kilometres away from the centre to being four and a half kilometres away from the centre. So when you come back down, you're not going to land on the same bit of the asteroid, and you're going to miss your trampoline. <laughs> so you're going to go splat. Well, you're going to go splat. I mean, you wouldn't hurt yourself. It would be like falling off a trampoline on the Earth and landing on the ground at you know, two or three metres per second, but... Mm -hmm. Um, you're certainly not going to hit the trampoline several times in a row to get those multiple bounces and build, build up your speed. You'd have to cover the whole asteroid with trampolines to make sure you kept hitting them. <laughs> there is a more practical way to get off the asteroid. Um, sort of just go around picking up rocks and putting them in a bag that you're carrying and keep doing this until you've got your own mass in rocks. And so, and then what you have to do is jump up off the surface. And maybe when you're carrying all the rocks, you can only jump up at half a meter per second. But even so, you'll be up above the surface for about eight minutes. Hmm. Now, during those eight minutes, take out the rocks and start throwing them back down at the surface. Now, when you're throwing objects, you can easily throw them at five metres per second. And so, uh, you know, within a couple, a few minutes, you should have thrown your own mass downwards at five metres per second. And the total momentum of yourself and the rocks has to be conserved. It has to stay at zero overall. So if all your mass in rocks is going down at 5 metres per second, you've started going up at 5 metres per second. And so that boosts you up to escape velocity. And so, basically, the best way to escape from Ian Morrison is to throw things at Ian Morrison. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Thank you very much, Edward. It was a great answer. And thank you very much to Max for an interesting question, which had a slightly more complicated answer when you start thinking about it. But do please keep those questions coming in. So thank you very much, Mark, Ashley, and Max. And thanks very much again to Edward for answering them. You're welcome, Nick. Thanks, Edward and Nick. 
And Nick, you have some more exciting news to tell us. Yes, so listeners of the last episode of the Jodcast will know that Manchester hosted the Manchester Microlensing Conference, which is the annual conference for the microlensing community. And the hot topic in microlensing is how we can use this gravitational lensing effect to discover extrasolar planets. Now, we couldn't, during the last episode, announce some exciting new results because they were strictly secret. But now the news so is why, out. Why, why were they secret, Nick? Uh, why were they secret? Just because it's a uh, publication policy of the um, journal in which these results are being published. We're not allowed to talk about it until that journal has released the results, and that has appeared in print today, and so we are now able to talk about it. So so tell us a little bit about this system, then. Okay, so of the 250 extrasolar planets that we know to exist so far, 25 systems exist, so those are planetary systems of more than one planet. The exciting results announced today is that the planetary system found most recently, is the most similar to that of our own solar system. And by similar, I mean in terms of uh, we know that they have, uh, we know that this planetary system has two gas giant planets, which look very much like analogues of Jupiter and Saturn in our own solar system. So by analogues, you mean they're similar mass or hmm. size as well? Mass, size, and orbital radius. The planetary system which has been discovered by this gravitational microlensing technique is essentially a scaled version of our own solar system when you look at the, the gas giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn. So the host star of this planetary system is roughly half the mass of our own sun. And the gas giant planets, the largest one is about 70% the mass of Jupiter, and the lower mass one is about 30% the mass of Jupiter, which, when you look at the ratio of their masses, is almost exactly the same as Jupiter and Saturn are to each other in our own solar system. Also, when you look at the orbital radii of these planets around their host star, they orbit in a ratio almost exactly the same as that of Jupiter and Saturn. So that's why we say this is an exciting result, because these results show a planetary system which is very similar to our own solar system, just a slightly scaled-down version. And just remind us, most of the planetary systems found so far, how are they different to our solar system? The planetary systems found so far, well, the most successful extrasolar planet discovery technique is a radial velocity technique whereby you're looking at the wobble of a distant star produced by an orbiting planet. Now, that technique is most sensitive to massive planets orbiting close to their host star, because that's where you get the biggest effect. Now, that doesn't produce a, uh, a planet-star system at all like our own solar system. So that particular detection channel or method is somewhat biased to these rather strange hot Jupiter planetary systems. Uh, the research is led by Scott Gowdy of Ohio State University. It involves a large number of people spread across the world because of those of you who listen to the microlensing segments from the last episode will know that there's only one shot at getting data from a microlensing event. So that's why we need to organize, collaborate, and coordinate telescopes across the world to make observations of the same event when something interesting is occurring. So it's all very exciting. Alarm bells sound. People get on the telescopes as quickly as they can when they are told that this microlensing event is occurring and there is something looking like a deviation due to a planet. And how long does this event last? These events typically last in a matter of hours. So that's why you need to have telescopes spread around the world because if it's starting to become local dawn, at your telescope site and you're still trying to take data, you need to get on the phone to somebody else where it's starting to be local twilight so that they can pick up the baton, so to speak, and continue the observations. So it's very exciting news. You can read all about it on the Jodcast webpage. We have a link to the uh, press release and also to the uh, published paper and lots of other materials there which you can read all about it. So exciting stuff. 
Very good. So that brings us to the end of the February Extra show. It just leaves us to say thank you to Sean Cole, to David Paul, Carol Christian, Alberto Conti, and Edward Boyce. So thanks to all those people, and we hope you tune in in the March issue, where we talk to Lindsay Fletcher about the sun and solar flares. Yes, indeed. It's a great interview, so do tune in for that, so to speak. And also, please take some time to send us your feedback on the Jodcast feedback page, or via iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback and let us know what we're doing right. So until March, goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.